This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Broadway in Tucson. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, what are some ways that Tucson can improve the quality of life for those living with visual impairment? As heavy rainfall returns, a look at the effectiveness of the so-called stupid motorist law. Meet 12-year-old Tobias, who created his own epic movie studio at home, featuring dinosaurs, Godzilla, and Lego. And meet neighbors who became friends during the pandemic and founded the Art Alley Gallery along the way. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Dr. Penny Rosenblum is a Tucsonan who doesn't let visual impairment slow her down. She received her doctorate from the University of Arizona in 1997 in special education and rehabilitation. Dr. Rosenblum's specialty is working with children who are visually impaired and training teachers to do the same. In April of 2020, she was the primary researcher for the Flatten Inaccessibility Study. Its purpose was to learn how those who are blind or have low vision were affected in the early stages of the pandemic. We'll talk about those findings, but first Dr. Rosenblum shares how low vision impacts her life. I was born with my visual impairment um, as a result of my mother probably having rubella, the German measles, during pregnancy. And we could go into a whole thing about vaccinations and why I think those are so important. Suffice to say, I was born with congenital cataracts, and that's a cloudy miss of the lens inside of your eye. So those lenses were removed when I was a preschooler, and I have never been able to drive a car. I hold things much closer. In social situations, I miss a lot of visual cues. However, I do read regular print. I do use a computer, many of the same things other folks do. And people might be surprised to know that I'm often riding my bicycle around Tucson because that's my primary mode of transportation as somebody who doesn't drive because of having a visual impairment. In sizing up a study of this scale, um, what were some of your primary areas of inquiry? Three of the biggest issues are transportation, social interaction, and access to employment. Um, And speaking both from a personal perspective and a researcher perspective, um, transportation for me is definitely number one. Probably the best thing in my world has been the advent of ride sharing, like Lyft and Uber, because that has so increased my ability to be more independent in my travel. Many people with visual impairments really have to think about where they live in a community, how they're going to get around to maximize their independence. And what we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic um, in a report called Flattening Inaccessibility that I was the lead author for was that suddenly because of social distancing, the concern about us being near other people that weren't in our immediate bubble, a lot of transportation options went away not to mention communities cutting back or canceling services, or even for somebody who the service was still there, now you had to enter the bus from the back of the bus, so you didn't have access to the driver to be able to ask, hey, can you call out my stop? And if you had a physical disability on top of your visual impairment, entering at the back of the bus, 
you don't have that kneeling bus option. You have these giant stairs that you have to climb. Another thing that I personally experienced was a lot of things went to drive through or curbside pickup. That's well, right. that works great if you happen to have a vehicle that you can drive through or do curbside pickup. Um, one day I went to Nico's Tacos on my bicycle, and here I am in the drive-through lane, which was the only option to get you know my morning burrito. And the driver behind me is like, lady, what are you doing? And I'm like, they're not open on the inside. This is the only way for me to get my burrito, just like you. And he, he was I never thought about that. In October of 2020, if everyone can think back to where they were at that point and where the world was in dealing with the pandemic, you wrote an open letter to the Arizona Daily Star that shared the contact to read the flattened inaccessibility report that you were the primary researcher on. So in a nutshell, please tell us where this report came from, who funded it, and who conducted it. In March of 2020, back when we were just all learning about the pandemic, a company called IRA, that's A-I-R-A, where a visually impaired person can get their app on their device and they can connect with a visual interpreter, somebody who will help them, for example, read a sign or see if um, the milk in the refrigerator is past the expiration date. So it's getting some visual help. And during February and early March, IRA saw people were asking for different kinds of assistance than they were before. Am I six feet away from this person on the bus? And so the CEO of IRA, Troy Otillo, contacted the CEO of the American Foundation for the Blind, Dr. Kirk Adams, and said, hey, can we do a little research study together? Well, that bloomed very quickly into a large-scale study funded by the American Foundation for the Blind, and we ended up with 1,921 U.S. adults who were visually impaired, who responded to the survey. And this was back in April of 2020 when there was no toilet paper on the shelves and we were wiping down our groceries. Penny, what was something that surprised you about the uh, survey participants upon which the data was based? How many apps and websites are not accessible? Many of us went to, oh my gosh, I can't go to the grocery store. It's not safe. Let me order my groceries. And so you pull up an app for a company to order your groceries. And if you're using what we call speech reading software, similar to Siri on your iPhone, um, there's a program called VoiceOver built into every Apple device or a program called JAWS, like the Shark, on Android devices and PCs. You go to use one of these apps to place your grocery order. You can't get the information that somebody with typical vision is getting with sight. Mm -hmm. So we had folks in the study who had no way to get groceries. Their transportation options had disappeared. They couldn't access the apps um, or the websites. And this was really becoming an issue for some, some participants. What kind of recommendations then came out of the Flatten Inaccessibility Study to, to rectify that problem? One of the biggest recommendations from the Flatten Inaccessibility Study with technology is the need that we have to make the developers aware of the needs of people with disabilities so that technology is what we call born accessible, that we don't have to go back and retrofit like, oh, we forgot to label the button so that you can say, oh, yes, I want to put asparagus into my shopping cart. Or the picture of the asparagus, instead of saying asparagus, says 973-58. So if we start with vendors being aware that you need to design your technology to be accessible to everybody, that's going to alleviate part of the problem. Another recommendation is around policy. 
for example, when a news network is going to be putting out information about, you know, how many people in each county in Arizona have been, you know, diagnosed with COVID-19, you know, they pop that map up. How does somebody who can't see that image on the screen get that information? So we need to have regulations in place that ensure that information being shared with the public is accessible to everyone. My guest was Dr. Penny Rosenblum. The American Foundation for the Blind website provides a large amount of resources connected to the Flatten Inaccessibility Study, including the report itself. There's a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. At the time of this recording, it's early June, and the luckiest among us have already felt some monsoon rain. This season's return is cause for celebration, but it can still be dangerous. Every year, dozens of drivers in Pima County get stuck in deep water because they ignore signs that tell them not to enter those areas. Christopher Conover filed a report in 2019. Turn around, don't drown. Jessica Nolte is a spokesperson for the Tucson Fire Department, and her message here is especially applicable during the monsoon, or really any major rainstorm in southern Arizona. Yet plenty of people still try and drive across flooded washes and through flooded roadways. According to data from Tucson Fire, the Golder Ranch Fire District, Rural Metro, and the Northwest Fire District, firefighters responded to more than 250 calls for people who were stranded or needed a rescue from flowing waterways between 2015 and 2018. So why, despite the warnings, do people still drive into water and get stuck? The human capacity to evaluate risk is a very questionable proposition. Dr. Ole Teenhouse is a psychiatry professor at the University of Arizona. If we were constantly aware of the risks, we probably wouldn't get out of bed in the morning, okay? So we're primed to think of risk as something that we can handle. The rescues conducted by Tucson Fire and other departments fall into that category. People often getting stuck in places they know will flood. Going back and looking through the call data, you would think like, okay, there are some known trouble spots in town and there are some areas where you just imagine the water is going to puddle and pond and start to run. But regardless of where we are in the season, we even had Swiftwater Rescue out of the monsoon season. We had one back in February when we had all of that heavy rainfall and all of that water was draining off of Catalinas into all the channels in town and went into the Rito and somebody thought they could make it across the Rito with flow there. So it's it it doesn't it's a common feature during the monsoon but it certainly isn't limited to the monsoon and it's tough to say, is it early in the season that people finally catch up, or is it you know later in the season? It's, it, it's kind of a mix. And, and Plus, we have visitors in town. Not everybody is from town, so don't know how to approach it. And it's not just where washes cross roads. Some of those city intersections also can get inundated. Our storms are known to drop even an inch, maybe even more than that, in a very short period of time, and the drains just can't keep up. Let's go back to the rescue statistics. For the four years spanning 2015 through 2018, there were about 250 rescues. On most days with rescues, the fire department did one or two. A few days there were five to ten, but August 9, 2016 was an outlier. That day there were 54 rescues, including two in one location. The remnants of a tropical storm swept across the area. Nolte with Tucson Fire says fire departments train for those rescues, but still. It is a very dangerous situation, depending on 
the, the, the position of where the, the individual or individuals, you know, are in their vehicle, are they out of their vehicle, what are the conditions going on in that, that wash channel, that drainage channel, and then understanding, okay, something caused this. This could be a storm that's upstream. This could be a storm that's still active on top of us right now. The city of Tucson and Pima County put up signs closing flooded roads and warning drivers to stay out of flooded areas. The University of Arizona's Dr. Teenhouse explains why those signs don't always stop people. We see something that uh, warns us, but following the warning would create an inconvenience. I mean, I have myself sat at those streams and wondered whether they were really serious. And then you see some, you know, SUV go through and eventually you might think, well, you know, it's probably, they always exaggerate and so forth. It doesn't apply to me and bang, there you go. He says people use past experience as a guide for making decisions, especially those involving risk. The fact that everybody's personality style falls along a different point in terms of risk aversion versus risk-taking behavior uh, predestines some people more likely to be more likely to, to do foolish things. When drivers ignore the risk of a flooded road or wash and drive around signs that tell them not to enter the area, they're not only taking personal risk, they're violating the law. Arizona passed what is commonly known as the Stupid Motorist Law in 1995. It says that if a driver goes around a sign warning of flood risk, gets stuck and has to be rescued, that person can be charged for the rescue, a bill that could be thousands of dollars. But the data from the four major fire departments in the Tucson metro area shows it's rarely enforced. For a large department such as ours, second largest in the state, we have that budget we have that technical training. We, we kind of absorb that cost just into our daily operations. The stupid motorist violation is a misdemeanor. The Pima County Attorney's Office says it has no records of the law being enforced in at least four years. Tucson Police Department records show one ticket in the last four years for violating the stupid motorist law. Officials with the Pima County Sheriff's Department said they also have no records of these tickets. That's because if citations are issued in a flood rescue situation, they're more often written for reckless driving or even child endangerment if there are kids in the car. These are certainly preventable, save for those really rare cases where it may be that giant wall of water that's coming down the wash. But if, you're, if you live in town, you know where those areas are. Monsoon officially ends on September 30th, but rain any time of year can cause a flooded roadway. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. That report was filed in 2019. You can visit our website at azpm.org to find an interactive map of all the stranding incidents and swift water rescues in Pima County over the last few years. Who says you need millions to bring dinosaurs back to life? Hailing from the town of Parks, Tobias is a 12-year-old who found a way to combine several of his favorite interests with the power of his imagination. He's been making his own movies and sharing them on YouTube, 
picking up all the filmmaking skills he needs as he goes along. His specialty is giant monsters, prehistoric dino epics, made with the complex and patience-testing art of stop-motion animation. I asked Tobias to tell us how he got started. I guess I uh, watched many YouTube videos of the same format, and I got inspired, and since I like making movies, I decided to just work with what I got, try to buy the things that I need, and just make a movie. Tell us about your appreciation or your interest in dinosaurs. I don't know. When I was, like, really young, I watched Jurassic Park, and that really got me into dinosaurs. And then I I consider myself to have a very deep appreciation for the animals because I just adore learning about them, and they're fascinating, just like everything about them, basically. Can you name some of the dinosaur species that you've used in your films? My most recent film, I used Stegosaurus and Allosaurus, and uh, in my other films, I used Tyrannosaurus rex, Ceratosaurus, um, Herarosaurus, um, Clovisaurus, and like a T-Rex figure, which I was using as a replacement for Despletosaurus. Have you watched early stop-motion films? Has anyone ever shown you King Kong? Well, I haven't seen the original yet, but I do plan on it. You'll learn a lot from watching it. And you'll also be aware of something that animators know about, that it's really hard to do stop-motion animation with something that has fur. Yeah. Explain it to Um, people who are listening why that would be tricky. Well, the way I see it, um, with fur, it's, it's, uh, it's loose. So because you constantly have to touch the figure to move it, Uh, the fur would constantly be moving and shifting around. Precisely. I I, I think the uh, fur shifting around kind of adds to the charm of it. Yeah, there is a lot of charm to stop motion. What else would you say you've really come to appreciate from this form? Well, I uh, I just appreciate the talent, the effort, the patience that goes into stop-motion animation, like, you need to, like, make the figures, and you got to make them perfect, and then you got to take up a lot of your time and effort into making sure the stop-motion looks as smooth as you can get it. You also combine music and even digital effects to uh, make your films. Tell us about that, about how you've been adding to the number of skills and the number of techniques that you've been able to use. I use iMovie and Stop Motion Pro 2, I believe, on the computer. And they really help me because, like, with iMovie, I can add in sound effects and music. And with Stop Motion Pro 2, I can add in drawn-in effects to make the overall product look better. And maybe we should warn some of our um, more meek viewers that when your dinosaurs fight, There's often blood as a result. Yeah, um, I'm all for uh, realistic depictions. Um, So if I feel like a certain scene needs to be bloody, I'm not afraid to make it bloody because I want my audience to feel for whoever's in the scene. I want to have just this impact. And I've seen you use different techniques to create the blood. I think I've seen you use digital tools to do it. You've used clay Mm -hmm. to represent blood and injuries, 
And you also mixed up some formula of your own, I think, for one of your well, films. Well, yeah, um, I, I, I think it's been a while, but I think I got it off of a YouTube video, uh, corn syrup, um, red dye, a drop of blue dye, and then some water, and then you just mix it to make it look like real blood. So of the techniques that you've used to do it, which do you think was the most effective? Which one were you proudest of in the end? Well, um, to be honest, I'm proud of all of them. I feel like they work for different purposes. Like the more realistic blood is like uh, for my dinosaur stuff. My uh, clay and uh, digital blood is like for my kaiju stuff. I see. Okay, that makes sense. So what are your goals right now as a filmmaker? What do you want to do next, or are you working on a big project you want to tell us about? I'm, like, finishing off this two-year-old series. So once I finish that, I'm going to try to work on a possible uh, five-movie franchise, um, like Godzilla franchise, that I'm going to use figures for. And I'm also going to be planning on a dinosaur documentary uh, with stop-motion puppets if I can learn how to build them. Well, that sounds very ambitious. And if people want to check out your YouTube channel, what kind of content do you offer? Toy movies, uh, stop-motion movies, uh, dinosaur reviews, and Lego how-to-builds. And I will uh, be trying to do, like, little... Uh, movie discussion videos in the near future. So that'll be something I'll be adding soon. You can find all of the short films made by Tobias on his YouTube page. It's called Jurassic Studios. Next, we'll hear from two neighbors who found out that they had more in common than they expected during the pandemic. To stay positive, they decided to transform their shared alleyway into a gallery collecting and displaying a dizzying variety of art that began bringing their community together in some surprising ways. We'll hear them tell their story next in their own words. My name is Josefina Zapata. I'm known as Josie. The last five years of my teaching experience, I had the best job ever. I taught a class called Outdoor Learning, and basically, uh, allowed me to use my philosophy that I believed in, which was letting children be able to play outside, to be learning from their environment, to respect public spaces, and to be stewards of keeping that space beautiful and that they want to be part of. The alley is a public space that we basically have taken ownership. And I had lived in this neighborhood for 40 some years, and I have become real close to my neighbors. Rosanna and Luis are one of my closest friends. This pandemic had uh, been a real hard on all of us. Uh, I lost five family members, close friends. <laughs> and so I tried to do positive things to keep myself going. And then I got the idea of creating an art gallery in the alley because the alley was used for dumping old furniture. Rosanna and Luis were the first one that said, yeah, let's do something with it. And so I was amazed at what they created. I am Luis Lievenos. I am 10 years old. We lost our chess teacher, and I lost my um, grandpa as well. And just like my dad, still miss him. 
I lost him when I was eight years old, and it was hard getting through that loss and everything. Every single Saturday, we would have a music night, and he would put on different types of music, and that's how I started loving music, and then I started doing art. I just really like to just free draw and just lots of coloring and drawing. It expresses my, um, my emotions a little bit because the loss of my dad and everything, it bring it out just a little bit more, but not that much. The 60s and the pandemic were very similar to me in emotions. I grew up in a generation that was very scary, the same feeling because I was in high school when they first killed the, the first soldiers in Vietnam. And it turned out that I lost friends from high school and relatives. At the beginning of the pandemic, I felt the same feeling of not understanding what was happening. And as a pediatric nurse and as an educator, I have been real worried about the long impact of isolation for one year. And parents are worried about their jobs and they're also isolated with their work. And children didn't have the experience to play freely outside and, and express their, their feelings, their fears, and making happy uh, experiences for them. My friend Autry, his parents they were nervous about the pandemic and I don't blame them because it's pretty scary. And he had a lot of anxiety, so playing video games with him helped him and telling him like, hey, you can make art and he just sent it to me and I'll hang it up. We're slowly going back to normal, but I always want to encourage people to like of art and mostly everyone already does. So my work is already done. Since we've had the gallery, we haven't had any furniture dropped off. We haven't had trash. And uh, we've had a good response from people walking. And it's um, an opportunity to meet new people, an opportunity to share ideas and feelings. And so it's gonna be an ongoing process as long as I am healthy and and have the energy, we'll keep doing it. After the construction's done, it'd be pretty cool like having a whole entire art gallery alleyway. <laughs> Just um, like walking through it and hanging up pictures like or paintings like saying helpful words to get through the pandemic. And for them to be calm and encouraging them. And that like me, it may be just a little bit hard, but you can get through it. I think the pandemic, we're healing in, uh, in different ways. I see a lot of compassion and love and wanting to help. Those skills are not lost in children, especially Luis had difficult losses. And to me, he's my hero. That story was produced for PBS 6 by Koich Nisimon and adapted for radio by Zachary Harnes. You can see the art alley as it appeared on Arizona Illustrated at our website, azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. 
Production assistance by Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to Broadway in Tucson for their support of Arizona Spotlight.